You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. How about we start the show? Sure. Yeah, I guess, if, since we're here. Um, let's start this week talking about what's been running in the New York Times and the Washington Post the last few days, uh, that President Biden's really kind of reshaping the EPA to push electric vehicles as soon as possible. Um, I think this is interesting on a number of levels, uh, but we're really pushing a lot of, as a, you know, you guys have made me cynics now, we're pushing a lot of extra weight on the road because batteries weigh a lot. And you guys have pointed out to me a number of times that the greater the weight, the greater the fun. No, the more damage is going to happen to pedestrians and other cars around. Uh, so what's, uh, what are our thoughts here, guys? Well, basically just kind of for background for the listeners, the, the EPA regulates a couple of things involving cars that are important. Um, they regulate the consumption, uh, the fuel consumption of the vehicles. They do that in coordination with NHTSA. Those are the CAFE standards or corporate average fuel economy standards that we hear about every few years. Um, they're actually in the process of writing those now. This is another area where EPA um, works on vehicles. Instead of consumption, it's emissions. So it's what's coming out versus what's going in. They don't have to coordinate with NHTSA here. Um, I think that shows somewhat, but who knows? You know, I'm sure coordinating with NHTSA can be difficult at times. These, um, you know, we're, I don't think any of us aren't in favor of tailpipe emissions here, but um, I think we all need to be very aware that there's a big trade off. Um, and that makes me wonder whether or not there should be, you know, a longer time frame here for compliance. And that's really because right now I'm not sure that the battery tech, we have should be stuffed into every vehicle in America at the moment. I mean, we're seeing things. We, we know weight is undefeated in crashes. The consequences of increased, you know, injury and death are inevitable here for every, you know, thousand pounds you put into a vehicle, you're going to increase the risk of severe death and injury by 50% or so. So that's going to happen. Um, what we don't know here is whether, you know, what the EPA is mandating out of tailpipe emissions, you know, is there some kind of, you know, is are, are we somehow saving way more lives here with reduced emissions than we are, with, um, you know, ultimately going to kill and injure in vehicles? It's a very difficult trade-off, and it's one that, you know, with all the speculative and uh, evidence for EVs at this point, the, the EPA is relying on a lot of estimates, um, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm completely convinced that this is a the path forward at this point. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a tough issue. But we know, you know, we know from the other article this week that our cars are really aren't cars anymore for the most part. Most people are driving trucks on the road. Um, these vehicles are getting bigger all the time, even without the added battery weight. And so it's uh, the EPA is coming in on top of this, basically saying you're going to need to add more weight to these vehicles starting in 2027 to make sure that um, these emissions are offset the emissions in ICE vehicles by the added battery uh, capabilities in your fleet. 
Um, you know, along with what we're seeing in terms of range anxiety and vehicles being, you know, the, the, the vehicle range is so important to consumers and to manufacturers who are trying to outrange each other that every gain in battery technology and, and gains in energy density in the battery is being applied to range increases versus reducing the vehicle's weight to, to make them perform better in crashes. So, Everything's going in the wrong direction for for those of us who are worried about added weight in vehicles. And this proposal, uh, it's a proposed rule by the EPA, doesn't take that into account. And, um, you know, like I say, I, I, I maybe they would have gained something here by consulting with NHTSA, although NHTSA has always been very hesitant to do anything that would tell manufacturers they need to, to make their vehicles lighter. So... It's a very difficult area, um, and unfortunately, I think that, you know, if this rule comes into effect, which it may or may not, depending on the legal challenges, um, we will see some, you know, more tragedies on the road due to increased weight of the vehicles that this is ultimately going to require. Shouldn't we have some level of data, though? Because, okay, so you alluded to, uh, there's an article we'll link to in the Washington Post about how everybody's driving a truck now, how... A lot of cars have been reclassified that way. So we've seen over since, you know, the 1980s that vehicle weights keep going up, but at the same time, tailpipe emissions should be going down. Um, so there should be enough data at this point to see, Hey, as, has as, um, increased pollution controls, has that helped, uh, issues around asthma rates or is there a balance of, Hey, these, but these cars are all heavier and they're killing more people on the road or just, no one's done that math or I'm wishful thinking. Well, I mean, I think there's probably some useful data, but that is partly wishful thinking because this is ultimately, you know, a change on our roads that we've never seen before. So, you know, the past may be a reference for the present, but it's, I don't think it's very predictive here. Because um, every vehicle with if moving to today's current lithium ion or iron phosphate batteries, that automatically adds an extra what? 30%. So, you know, we, wow. that's, that's a problem here. We're looking at, you know, I think Tesla Ford has certainly indicated this. I think they built a whole plant around this idea of moving to iron, the iron based batteries, the LFP batteries that, um, have a much lower, you know, they're somewhat more reliable. They have a much lower rate of, of combustion fire. and fire, but they weigh 30% more, which means that if you want the same range out of it in a vehicle, the vehicle battery is going to weigh 30% more than it would have otherwise, I guess. So it's, it's, that's an automatic addition of weight. Um, and it's something that, um, I think these batteries, they're probably more cost effective to produce than, than, than the, uh, other lithium types with the higher energy density, which is another reason manufacturers are moving to them. But it's, you know, the weight we the consumers on the road are, are bearing the brunt of those decisions. Um, we are the ones who are going to be hit by these vehicles that weigh more. So the, the goal behind this is eventually is reducing pollution, reducing tailpipe emissions, making cars more efficient, no matter the, the power source, right? But auto manufacturers have fought against this forever. Like, I mean, my current car probably gets an EPA rated 30 something miles per gallon, but the car right. I bought in the nineties got 30 miles per gallon as well. Like, <laughs> it, and these were, these were at the high end, like the fleet averages were, you know, probably then were, you know, 17 miles, 
Greg Allen, now they're 20 something or, or right. something like that. But the thing is, so the auto industries have fought against this forever. They have had zero interest in doing this. And that's why it seems they've cla- re- tried to reclassify every car as possible as a truck because if it's classified as a truck, it doesn't have to follow these tougher car fuel economy standards. So, right. It's almost like they lobbied to get that fu- that loophole put into the whole system. Yes. Hey, I, let me jump in here. I, you know, this the purpose behind this regulation is to reduce the net fuel consumption by the world, right? We're extremely right. well, it's, it's to reduce carbon footprint. It's reducing the emissions. So it doesn't the, really it, the consumption well, is the cafe part of it. That's and reducing yeah. the emissions. Yeah, that's what it does. But the but the motivation behind this is to apparently force manufacturers to move to electric vehicles because yep. it's technically difficult to achieve these uh, standards. As I understand, as I've heard them reported, I haven't seen it myself, but as I've heard them reported, uh, it's difficult to do it any other way than to go with electric vehicles. But here's the problem. Okay, this this whole problem of carbon footprint and pollution is rather like a balloon. You squeeze it in one place and it just pops out in some other place. There are so many issues associated with this and the net carbon consumption that you know this this may well backfire on everybody because if you force people to move to electric vehicles, you are also forcing the utility companies to put in a lot more power distribution. If you move to uh, regenerative technologies, windmills, solar power, what have you, you are forcing people to put in a lot of batteries. You are forcing people to change the structure of the electrical substations so that they include both energy storage as well as energy distribution. You're, you're moving the utilities from a distribution system to a system that's also going to capture and store the energy and become a you know more like a warehouse than merely a distributor. So there's a tremendous tail associated with this requirement. And I don't think it's been, I just don't think it's been thought through. My my real concern is that, you know, this is going to, this is going to come back and bite us all because the net, net energy production and the net carbon associated with this change may well be in the wrong direction because of all the ancillary activities that are got to take place to, to make this happen. I think it's a real concern. I, it's a concern for me. And I think politically it may backfire because nobody's ever yet shown that any society that's heavily invested in electric transportation reduces its net carbon consumption. Norway, for example, has the highest penetration of electric vehicles in the world. Nobody's nobody said that the oil consumption in Norway has gone down. They're pumping like crazy. They're now providing all the natural gas for Europe that used to come from uh, from Russia. You know, the, this is a very, very complex problem. A simple solution to this complex problem is is unlikely to solve the problem. Well, uh, the one thing we do know is that, you know, added weight is going to increase deaths and injuries on the roads, right? Oh, uh, a lot of this other stuff is an yeah. estimate. And it's so it's that's why it's difficult. I mean, we, we here at the center, we know what the consequences of weight are. Some of these other things, maybe not as concrete to us, right? Yeah. But, well, let's think of ways to reduce the weight of cars. Well, you could put inductive 
uh, mechanisms into a highway so that the, uh, you know, the highway becomes a source of the power, the motive power for the vehicles going over it. It's technically possible to do that. It only requires more money than the world has got. Okay. But, <laughs> you know, right. but, but it's technically possible to do it. And, and again, I think that it's really important to think through the consequences of this kind of change uh, before forcing it on the world. I understand politically you can't do everything and it's more important to do something than to do nothing. But I think there's a, there's a lot of jeopardy here, incre- including politically, that, you know, if all of this stuff happens, then with the consequences of it and the benefits of it may just not be there the way people think they are. And that's, right. you know, that would give the, the opposition, the political opposition, lots of, lots of fodder for uh, the kind of nonsense that they pursue. Well, we've, anyway. we've talked in the last few weeks about tech neutrality and how uh, NHTSA, you know, when it's pursuing standards for automated vehicles and otherwise, you know, tends to want to remain tech neutral. I mean, obviously, there are some things that we'd like to see in cars. For instance, I think, you know, infrared that could detect objects and people and, and animals is the kind of thing we'd love to see include in all pedestrian automatic emergency braking package. But it's hard to mandate that type of technology because you're basically saying you have to use this when there might be other ways of accomplishing it. I, in this circumstance, I, you know, I would ask both of you, do you think this proposal is tech neutral? They're they're touting it as a tech neutral regulation, but then they go on to cite, you know, most of the document that I've read is citing studies on electric vehicles. I mean, it's pretty clear where the push is here, and it's anything but tech neutral from my perspective. No, it doesn't seem to be tech neutral at all. And that that's something I don't understand with NHTSA claiming they're tech neutral. I mean, seatbelts are required. Like, sure, they don't tell you it needs to be made out of nylon or something like that, but you don't have any choice. Airbags are required. Sure, we learned you can you know, it's it more or less technological. Sure, the propellant, as we've learned, can be anything they want. Like, you need tires. <laughs> like, it's there's there's certain things that are not really tech neutral, uh, and I'm I'm fine with that. But I think what we're talking about, what we can focus on, the center of auto safety, the the weight issue. I think there are better ways to reduce weight, or maybe it's it's what this other article, the Washington Post article, talks about, where everyone's driving trucks. I remember in must have been the late nineties or so where there was a tax incentive or it was maybe the early two thousands where you got a massive tax break if you bought an SUV. Like this was an inst- a tax incentive to make you go out and buy a heavier vehicle that got less miles per gallon. Like why uh, there should be kind of the opposite where you have a car above a certain weight, you should be. Right. Paying a tax on that more because we've pointed out heavier vehicles, um, rip up roads more. They destroy w- roads. Um, I, I think that's legitimate because you look at, you look at, there's a number of small electric vehicles that don't weigh that much. I mean, maybe they're not the most attractive for people like the Nissan Leaf. Maybe it's too small because I can't, you know, hook up my boat to it that I'm going to travel 3000 miles each weekend with because people have that myth or our Chevy Bolt or I, I think um, Honda has a small EV, something like that. You can get vehicles that aren't that heavy um, to do that. And I think it's, and they're not going to destroy the road as much, but yeah, I can't sit 20 feet above traffic and not see the kid in front of me that I ran over. I'm just like, Hey, I hit a bump. <laughs> Let's keep going. 
Woohoo! Roll call. Well, one one good solution for reducing the weight of vehicles is Dying. to promote the use of bicycles and to promote the use of public transportation. And this whole initiative is just a way for actually the government and us to to kick the real problem down the road, which is that the mobility model we've got for the United States is horribly destructive. And, you know, other countries are, are recognizing that they're restructuring their transportation systems to allow people and in fact, encourage people to use low carbon, healthier, safer technologies to get back and forth to work. Um, we don't do that here. You know, we're, <laughs> we're heavily committed to individual transportation based on cars and really to solve this problem, to solve a lot of problems, governments need to step up and say that we really need to restructure our transportation system to allow people to do things that'll benefit themselves as well as the public, like bicycles, like public transportation, like uh, greenways, limiting parking. There's a lot of things that can be done, but there's no political will to do them. So I, you know, I, I've got the feeling that this tailpipe emissions control is really looking at the wrong end of the elephant. And they really ought to look at the front end of the elephant and say, well, how are we going to fit this elephant into the world that we live in? I don't want to look at an elephant. They're creepy looking. Um, but yeah, I don't I, think you're wrong. I, I mean, I, I, you know, you look at, you look at how Los Angeles is laid out and I blame General Motors. Um, but speaking of uh, our friends at General Motors, I'm going to jump to something a little more light. Uh, as regular listeners to the show, you know uh, myself and and Kyle, the head of GM Cruise. We have a you know a relationship. Right now, it's one way. I mean, I'm the I'm the more aggressor, and he's passively just watching and listening. So we called out last week how the GM Cruise ran into a bus, um, and and GM Cruise now is 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 applauding themselves for saying, hey, we did a voluntary recall because, you know, this was a rare incident. We've never had anything like this happen. You know, so, you know, they put a little blog post about it saying, hey, less than an hour after the conclusion, collision, we had fully assembled the team to investigate what happened. Hey, only an hour later, if you're in an automated vehicle, whereas if I crash in your car right now, I don't need to wait an hour. We're talking and exchanging information and probably first responders are on the scene with less than an hour. But this is a new, brave new world. And they said, hey, we identified the root cause, which was a unique error re related to predicting the movement of articulated vehicles. This was a, a bus that, you know, those long buses and whatnot. Then um, they're saying, hey, we've never had a collision related to this before. Granted, he ignores all the other collisions they've had, but we've never had one. We've hit a bus before. Aren't we amazing? You're not amazing. You're a clown. Oh, that might be oh, too Anthony. hard. I know it's too high. I'm just, you know, you know, you know I, I actually, I like what, what Kyle is doing here. I like that. He's covering the company's recall and putting out, you know, a document that's I agree from the company that's, you know, that consumers can read uh, and say, Oh, well, you know, they really care because typically with recalls, you know, you don't get that. You get a report, the five, seven, three that's submitted to NHTSA that, you know, technically describes a recall, but, you know, and then basically leaves it up to reporters and everyone else to cover, you know, the subject matter um, here, you know, they're getting out ahead and saying, you know, we know, 
we know you folks in San Francisco have seen some issues. We know there's some problems here, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that's a good thing to reach out to consumers like that. You know, I think we still don't necessarily think that there's really any reason to have these vehicles out patrolling the streets of San Francisco and Austin, you know, the use case problem there, but um, they're going to keep pushing them out and they're going to keep pushing for legislation on them. And they're going to keep, you know, ultimately trying to convince us that we need these cars and that Uber and these other, other services we already have aren't good enough. So um that's all. I, I just want to, you know, take up for Kyle a little since Anthony's just very hard. Well, I also, uh, <laughs> let me just suggest that they've got the best engineers in the world because they pushed out a um, a fix for this within 48 hours. So they did a complete root cause analysis. Um, they did an update. They did regression testing over all these hundreds of millions of lines of code in every possible circumstance that the vehicle is going to encounter. In less time than it takes most of us to tie our shoes, this is this is either an incredible achievement or they didn't do a very good job with the regression testing because that's not easy. It takes time, it takes thought, and uh, it's my hats off to them if they really did a great job doing the regression testing to make sure that this software is adequately validated. I'm going to I would be very surprised if a critical analysis showed that they covered every step all right i agree i i i'm gonna back off i'll apologize you know kyle look i'm a little too aggressive with you but you know you had that silly interview where you out elon musk elon musk but i want to point out in this this press release and i i agree it's great you came out and you were you were a little public about it but this is not cruise specific here now this is all av companies pull the same kind of obfuscation. In his uh, little blog post, he said, RAVs had driven over 1 million miles in fully driverless mode. Um, and that sounds really impressive as a layperson. A million miles, that's great. I'll never drive a million miles in my entire life. Wow, that's great. And you can't see the video. I'm looking both at Fred and Michael, and they're like, million miles is nothing. It's a rounding error. It's like uh, the a significant amount of miles for your car to find out like if it's actually safe is what 100 million miles is that is Yeah, that I mean that's what I was going to point out. I mean, 1 1 million miles means very little when when we know that you know there's a vehicle fatality every little over every 100 million miles traveled, so it's 1 million miles is you know you're you're not that far. Plus, during this time, you've been doing things like recalls and reprogramming the software. And so that million miles was driven on, you know, different systems uh, in, in some respects. So it's, you know, it's also a lot less miles, I believe, than Waymo and some others are claiming. So eh, a million miles is a million miles. Sounds like a lot because I'll never drive that far. But in terms of overall traffic and, and the safety analysis, a million miles is, is not that much. Well, it's 1% of the way to showing, you know, something, but I guess it's a, it's a start. So it's been what, two years. So let's see, two years is 1%. So we're talking 200 years to get up to the point where they could say that, you know, maybe with low confidence, they're as safe as some other vehicle if they don't change the software and if no other, ha no other, uh, Bad circumstances take place. So, yeah, 200 years from now, I'll be ready to take a ride. <laughs> All right. You've heard it first. Fred Perkins prediction, self-driving cars in the year 2223.
It's 2023, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, 2223, uh, yeah. Yeah, 2223. I'm going to make it 2222, okay? It's you like, should have done that. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you should have said 199 years since they've already gone through one year, right? Or two years. Look, we'll, we'll all win on the prices right because we're all going to bid $1. Uh, speaking of self-driving cars, Aurora, a trucking company, they're getting ready next year to have a trucking, a self-driving truck go from Dallas to Houston, Houston to Dallas back. Um, I don't know how many, if they've reached the million mile mark in their testing, um, but there's an article in the Dallas Morning News and what they're saying is it's equipped to handle common driving maneuvers like lane changes or merges and can also deal with construction, emergency vehicles and extreme weather. It's not done yet, says the chief product officer of Aurora. Uh, I appreciate the fact that he said it's not done yet. But, you know, regardless, we're going to put it out on the road next year. Have a nice day. How much time do I have to rant on this? (laughs) As much as you want. And uh, the person you're going to rant against is not Kyle Vogt. It is Sterling Anderson. Well, Mr. Anderson wrote that the milestone marks the culmination of six years of research and development. Uh, He does not go on to say why this is enough. So there's, you know, there's no... Uh, <laughs> the investor said it was enough. Let's make some investor, that, that must be it. Then he goes on to say some uncommon and infrequent, there, it's uh, ability to detect and respond to some uncommon and infrequent scenarios it could encounter. So I wonder why only some and not all. You would think that a reasonable person would say all of the situations likely to encounter have been vetted and, you know, everything looks okay, but... I guess some is where you're going to start. Um, what else? Where, oh, there's so much, so much. Well, I would say it's a little unclear from from what I've read whether or not there's going to be a safety driver. It sounds like they're planning on there not being one, but they're not quite there yet. So that's a little unclear as well. Yeah, I'd um, be okay with a safety driver because in my mind, then it feels almost like the the Ford Blue Cruise or the GM Super Cruise. Thing which I'm because there has to be a driver because okay it's on the freeway but how did it get on the freeway how is it getting off the freeway well it doesn't make that yeah clear. further to that he Anderson goes on to write Mr Anderson goes on to write by designing the Aurora driver to detect and respond to the unexpected now we're working to ensure it exceeds the rigorous safety efficiency and reliability standards of major carriers etc so wouldn't it make sense to exceed those standards before you put it on the road rather than put it on the road and expect it to build up to that. Uh, it, it seems like a curious case of putting the cart before the horse or putting the driver before the truck. I'm not sure how you want to say that. Well, I, I think they're going to learn a lot here because that is a heavily trafficked route between Houston and Dallas. And also, very importantly, and you know, it's somewhat of a difference from where we see Cruise and Waymo and some of the other companies testing, you're going to have a lot of severe weather um, in that area as far as heavy rain and storms and things like that, that that some of the robo-taxi type fleets aren't really dealing with at this moment. So um, it will be very interesting to see, to see what happens with Aurora. I mean, there are a lot of eyes watching them because they are one of the leaders in the trucking space that's saying driverless and that means that you know a lot of truck drivers aren't going to have jobs if this technology is adopted across the market and um that's 
that's a big future problem that we're facing in automation is what, what we're going to do with all these people we're trying to replace. The biggest, the biggest thing you did not report is, is the metrics that, that they're being collected, the safety performance indicators they're using, the metrics they're collecting, and who determines what is safe based upon those metrics that they're collecting. Are they looking at deaths per minute? Are they looking at pedestrians killed per month? Well, you know, how are they doing this? And, and what is the expected result of this? If there's, if they're trying to make a safety case that everything's okie dokie, shouldn't it be incumbent on them to tell us what the metrics are, how they're going to determine this and when they'll know they've done enough? I, I, I think it's interesting and, and, uh, disappointing that they don't share any of the objectives of this testing with the public before they go out and, you know, how does the public know that it's going to be safe at all? How do they know it's going to be safe enough? And how do they know that Aurora's met the standards that it's set, much less who said that those standards are acceptable? How, you know, how does that all work? And they haven't even thought about the children on road trips that go up to a truck and they make that pull symbol and they get the, the trucker to blast their horn. If there's no one in there, these poor kids are just going to be crying all the time. There's no one driving it. Well, uh, they may have to adopt a new hand symbol as they pass the truck. <laughs> yeah. So are these, uh, these are not EVs, right? These are ICE vehicles, correct? I mean, well, I suppose they could that, be both. Uh, I mean, EV hauling, like besides what Elon says, like they're not really pulling much weight and they're not driving four and a half hours as a, as a semi. Right Aurora, yeah. Aurora's model is not based on the type of propulsion for the truck. I didn't yeah. think so. Their business model is to look at putting this software into any arbitrary propulsion system. Okay. And so, Michael, I have to point out, so this from uh, from thetrucker.com, which we'll link to, uh, the refined beta, oh, that's what I want on the road, a beta software. The refined beta 6.0 adds the ability to detect and respond to some uncommon and infrequent scenarios it could encounter, such as sudden heavy rain, snow, yep. fog. I don't know how these are uncommon in Texas, um, sudden heavy rain. Uh, that doesn't strike me as uncommon in Texas. Uh, snow, uh, you know, Texas has some strange weather. Uh, fog, okay. I'm well. No, I mean, I, I don't. Uh, so, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm concerned because I, I think they still have a long way to go. I mean, I'd be, I'd be comfortable with them having a safety driver in this, someone who's paying attention, taking over. But I know that destroys their business model because their business model is. Get rid of the people. Well, Aurora is using, to, I guess to their credit, something we've talked about a lot on here. They're using a safety case framework. Now, oh. they're not very specific as to whether it's what safety case framework it is. I mean, they're, they're not, I don't know if they're adhering to UL 4600, but they lay out the fact that that's what they're using now i think what we're interested in is seeing the results seeing that what the safety performance indicators that are involved in that safety case show uh, making a public display of that data would go a long way towards ensuring that people like us aren't asking stupid questions all the time about your autonomy well i don't think it's a stupid question i think that the stupid answers haven't been provided Hey, give me a second. I'll come up with them. Uh, speaking of stupid answers, uh, Tesla was caught 
uh, sharing internal camera footage of their drivers with the staff. They, uh, Teslas, they put in cameras inside the vehicle to do driver monitoring, which we're all in favor of. Uh, the problem is that footage is being recorded and sent off to Tesla where they're sharing not only video footage of you picking your nose while driving and singing karaoke, but other more private, intimate scenes and not only the internal facing cameras but the external facing cameras uh so uh, this is i guess maybe in that long agreement things that no one's ever read i'm not even sure if the lawyers who wrote it read it you're agreeing to just give away all of your privacy uh Tesla's i'm just- not even sure if there's a way to do that <laughs> but this is concerning in a lot of ways i mean for me, the thing that most concerns me about this type of thing is that we are really going, if we're going to be putting these conditionally automated or level three or blue cruise, super cruise, whatever you want to call them, if we're going to be putting those vehicles on the road. You have to ensure that the driver's engaged in the driving task um, when necessary. And for a lot of these vehicles, that's all the time. Um, for some of the ones they say are coming down the road, that may be some of the time. We're still a little skeptical on, on that at the moment. So they're putting this technology. Let's see. I lost myself there for a second. Oh, so so they're putting, we're going to need driver monitoring vehicles. But when stories like this come out where you've got dumbasses at the at the manufacturer who are looking at people's private videos and sharing them that really sets back uh the consumer's perception of this type of technology i mean driver monitoring should be something that is sole purpose is ensuring that the human operator is engaged in the driving task and it's not something that's recorded and used later in lawsuits or to, you know, the next fappening or whatever is going to happen. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's just, a, you know, it's, it's a terrible, it kind of shows that there aren't a lot of controls around what goes on behind the scenes at Tesla. I don't think that's very surprising to some of us who have read stories about the way that they operate. Um, but it also shows, I think, that when they built these first Teslas with the camera facing the driver, they weren't really planning to do a whole lot of visual driver monitoring. That was set up as more of a video system than a driver monitoring system. And they've kind of crowbarred the driver monitoring system on top of their uh, other platforms and their vehicles. So that may be part of the issue here is that those videos were recorded by a system that was never intended to be driver monitoring, but nonetheless, very concerning behavior. And obviously something that no one in America wants is videos of intimate moments in cars involving themselves floating around in uh, Tesla's factories. But our drivers in Germany, it's a different approach. Sorry. Um, yeah, I don't understand why this these systems would ever leave the vehicle itself. For driver monitoring, there shouldn't be any reason why those videos are sent at all. It should just be a, a, a simple system that shouldn't even record long term, is just monitoring, yeah. okay, are their eyes engaged and whatnot. I, I, I don't even understand why it would record, to tell you the truth. I mean, why would you want to spend money on memory to deal with that anyway, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I'm, I imagine, yeah, Fred, you must have some insight on this. It's... it's 
it's kind of a, a continuous thing. It's like me looking at you right now over the Zoom call. Like, I don't need to record this. Like, okay, you just scratched your head. Great. Okay. He passed the head scratching move. Who cares? I don't need to store this. Interesting part of this is that there's tremendous bandwidth that is supporting the um, exchange of information between the vehicle and the uh, and the server somewhere. <clears throat> And I wonder who's paying for that. Is that something that's that's paid by the consumer? I'm I'm not sure. I, again, that's that's a digression. But maturity is not part of the curriculum in engineering uh, <laughs> degrees. And you know, if we look at the maturity of the owner of Tesla, I I think there's evidence that maturity that uh, maturity is not part of the curriculum for business owners either that probably percolates down through the system uh, in my experience i you know back in the early days of analog cell phones i witnessed engineers listening in on private conversations just because they could and there was no one there to enforce it in the room saying you know this is <laughs> this is a bad idea and uh, by the way if you can do it other people can do it as well so maybe you shouldn't do this that ethos doesn't seem to have percolated down through the Tesla engineering ranks. And I think, you know, there are things you can do in terms of encrypting the data and data permissions and access permissions and all those things that you know a lot more about than I, Anthony, to protect the data that's coming through. But, the, you know, there's a tremendous amount of data coming through. And why isn't that data being made available to safety advocates and safety analysts so that they can determine the cause of these collisions that uh, Tesla seems to be particularly fond of? Driving into flashing lights, compromising situations. Um, I, I don't know. It's interesting to me the disjoint between the availability of the data and the use of the data by people to try to make these vehicles safer and more private. There's a lot more that can be done. I agree. And while we wait for more things to be done, have you gone to autosafety.org and become a monthly donor? Five bucks a month. That's or 20 bucks a month or $3,000 a month. Oh my God. You're so generous. $3,000 a month. That's too much. It's too much. Make it $5,000 a month or just go to autosafety.org. Click that red donate button. And now speaking of maturity for engineers, let's go into the towel of Fred as he discusses the Consumer AV Bill of Rights, number eight, safety inspections. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Thank you. That's uh, a burden to be considered the mature part of this trio, but I'll, I'll try to step up the best I can. I'm being ageist. So this, this particular principle is uh, actually very important, and it's a sleeper issue that has received very little attention from my colleagues in the industry regulatory community. Uh, during safety inspections, AVs shall automatically confirm the validity of installed software and firmware versions for that vehicle and assess and report nominal capability and or failures of safety and life critical features that are not visually verifiable. So where does this come from? Uh, if you have a safety inspection or if you're a state police uh, officer pulling over a, a heavy truck for safety inspection, you do a visual inspection. You walk around, or, you know, the tire treads deep enough. Are things falling off the vehicle? Are the headlights falling off? Uh, show me your logbook. 
do all these things. You know, there's a lot of inspection tasks that you do visually. In AVs, there are at least hundreds and perhaps thousands of safety functions that, that are built into the automatic system that you cannot visualize and that you cannot inspect visually. All of these are important because they're either, by definition, safety critical or life critical. And if the AV is operating completely automatically, essentially every one of them is life critical. Couple examples, the distance between your car and the car ahead that is being used by the adaptive control system. The rate at which your vehicle turns to get into the center of the lane if you have a lane keeping system put on. The, valid the validity of the information coming in from the cameras that's going into the system to determine whether or not an anti-swerve uh, maneuver can be done safely. And on and on and on, you know, as you get into the more complex automated vehicles, you just add on more and more and more safety critical features. If you want to investigate a collision involving one of these vehicles, it's very important to lock down the configuration and to understand what is in the software that is controlling the vehicle. This is a, a fundamental part of every accident investigation I've ever been involved with. It's not included in any of the AV logic that or regulations that I've become familiar with. Um, has somebody tampered with your vehicle and put in software that you don't want to be there? Uh, one of the news articles this week talked about thieves breaking into a system by removing a headlight and tapping into the uh, what's called the CAN bus in your system that integrates all of the electronics. Well, if you have a configuration map and you can look out and say, well, this is not the configuration that's supposed to be there. I've got an, you know, all of a sudden I've got another electronic control unit attached to this vehicle. And what the heck is this all about? You are then in a position to reject that intrusion into your vehicle. But if you're not tracking the configuration of the vehicle, you'd never know. If you do a safety inspection, do you know that the software that's driving the vehicle is in fact the software that's supposed to be driving the vehicle? And if a, you know, if a police officer pulls over a heavy truck, the automated trucks we talked about earlier um, from Aurora, <clears throat> how do they do a safety inspection unless they can have some insight into what the software driving the truck is doing and whether or not all of the safety functions and safety performance indicators that we talked about earlier are in fact operating within the environment and within the safety limits that the designer has imposed on this. This is very complex. It's a very complex system. Um, NTSB, when they investigate a crash or a transportation anomaly, however you want to think about that, needs to lock down the configuration. They need to understand what it is. So what are all the causal factors that can be uh, contributing to this crash event? And are there systematic defects that they need to address in order to make sure it doesn't happen in other vehicles. It's fundamental that they need to be able to look at the software configuration and the safety performance indicators and, you know, how, whatever else is associated with the safety case for this vehicle to determine, number one, what it is. Number two, has it been tampered with? Number three, if it's the original configuration, 
do they need to address the safety limits within which this software function operates? This, this is not easy stuff, but fundamentally, you know, getting back to the, this original issue here, that during safety inspections on demand, AVs have got to be able to divulge that information and report it out to somebody, typically through a CAN bus that, you know, or the OBD that you can use for routine diagnostics on the vehicle so that they know what's in the vehicle, what's working properly, and, per and even more importantly, what's not working properly. And one other item associated with this, if you are in an automated vehicle and you're driving down the road, fat, dumb, and happy, reading your book and doing whatever you do in that car, you need to know rather quickly if some part of that safety environment uh, becomes defective. Let's say a bird flies into your camera or critical camera or, you know, the, the many things that can happen in a complex computing environment don't happen the way they're supposed to. Network problems, single event upsets, lots and lots of things can happen. You, the occupant, need to know very quickly that things are not okay, that things are not copacetic, and push yourself in a position to stop the vehicle and get out if that's what needs to get done. These are all related issues, but, you know, addressing the uninspectable safety critical features that are in a vehicle is something that the industry needs to step up to and something that needs to be available to regulators and to law enforcement so they can verify that these cars, in fact, operate the way that they should and they're operating safely because of their current configuration. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think. I would say the status quo right now is that this type of information is not available to people that are on scene or investigators or safety inspectors. They have to, in many sense, they have to either um, work with the automaker, as we've seen Innitzen and TSB have to do with Tesla, um, or they have to re-engineer the system somehow to figure out what's going on, which is really not an option. So manufacturers are probably not too keen on any changes to this. And I think what we'd like to see is a, you know, a some type of standardization that allowed investigators, inspectors um, to access the critical safety uh, items that need to be inspected on a vehicle without all of this uh, manufacturer uh, kind of secrecy. You know, they're hiding this. I mean, there's a reason to keep these systems safe from a cybersecurity perspective, but there's also very good reasons to allow uh, interested parties, owner and uh, inspectors access to the vehicle data and access to um, other parts of the vehicle systems to make sure that um, that you know ensure continued safety you know through the life of the vehicle ownership changes and other things. Well, privacy and the and the need to get in and understand the configuration are not exclusive. You can do both. You don't need right. to do one or the other. So it's important to recognize that. And uh, the the other complicating issue here is that a lot of the manufacturers now are moving to over-the-air updates for software. Every time you change the software configuration, uh, you become a different computing environment. There's no way right now to verify that every vehicle has, in fact, included the software updates 
so that what previously could have been tracked using a vehicle identification number probably is no longer uh, a means to do that. If there were only one software configuration associated with every vehicle identification number, that would be great. You could look up the VIN and you'd have the information that you need to determine what the software uh, active in the vehicle is. But that's not the case anymore, right? So the software can change daily. These guys at Cruise said they pushed out a new software configuration 48 hours yep. after they ran into the bus. Well, good for them. And we've uh, seen Tesla do it in shorter time spans. Well, yeah, especially when threatened by Consumer Reports downgrading of their vehicles. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they can move very quickly. Question is, how extensive is this update? And how do you associate that update with the vehicle identification number that the police officer is going to write down at the scene of the crash? Yeah. Right, because the, the the one vehicle that crashed today is a different vehicle with different software on it. Right, right. So and 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 in order again, getting back to the fundamentals of accident investigation, the first thing you do when you're doing an accident investigation or an incident investigation is you lock down the configuration, right. so that you know what you're dealing with. If you don't lock down the configuration, you have no idea what the cause of the of the crash is. And I'm just looking at this from a consumer point of view. They could accidentally overwrite things. So, okay, my ABU is in a crash, but, oh, I want to watch some TikTok video or play a video game. And, hey, that's downloading an update all of a sudden. And now my software is changing. Um, right. Well, that gets back to the software validation, right? Right. But so so you, you push out the update, but have you adequately validated that that update is safe? Have you done all the regression testing? And, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very complex issue, but the, I, the fundamental thing you need to do is understand the configuration so that you can dive into those other issues. I, I imagine the future push for uh, malware protection in your car is going to be extensive um, because as you went through this, I realized, oh, yeah, of course, my computers are always running malware detection. They're running some sort of virus detection. The operating system is doing secret updates that I don't even see happen for malware definition updates. And this is going to happen in your car. Or, I mean, uh, there's the FBI just a couple of days ago put on an announcement like, do not use public uh, phone chargers because right. they're installing malware that. Now I think, hey, I drive my EV not even an AV, my EV up to a, uh, you know, a public charger. Am I concerned that I'm downloading, you know, malware or something like that? It happens to my phone. It's a real big, annoying inconvenience, but no one's going to die. It well, you should be concerned car. because the first thing that the first thing that the charging station does is it addresses the status of your batteries because the amount of uh, and rate of electricity that it's putting in is based upon the charge state of your battery. So it's not, it, you know, it is intrinsically tied to the data system in your vehicle to do something that's, you know, fundamental to BVs, which is to just recharge the stinking batteries. Uh, this is, a, I think this is a huge and, and vitally important sleeper issue that has received very little attention and needs, needs a lot of attention. For our friends in the press, give us a call. We'll be happy to talk about this uh, ad nauseum, but the time time forces me to end my rant right now and for everybody else don't go outside it's just not safe okay <laughs> don't go near cars not safe don't do anything i'm kidding slightly um 
I want to let's let's end on a on a more positive upbeat. Let's well actually let's let's do a quick recall roundup and then we'll go into some lighter uh, stuff. Strap in, time for the recall roundup. Um, so our friends over at Porsche, um, they had to recall potentially 489 vehicles. This is the 2004 to 2005 Porsche Carrera GT. Hey, if you've got the Grand Touring package, you might need a recall. Um, oh, this is uh, in the event of a wishbone or spherical joint breakage, vehicle controllability could be effective, which could increase the risk of crash. Oh, how would you, how would your wishbone break? Oh, uh oh. You know, it looks like it's related to, um, a corrosion issue in the vehicles, but I will say this on this recall you won't see another manufacturer recall almost when these vehicles were built and designed 20 years ago. Um, you won't see too many other manufacturers recall uh, vehicles that are that old because they're not required to under the safety act. Oh, um, how, how far back do they have to go for a recall? 15 years. And so, Good on you, Porsche. you know, this says they, these cars don't meet Porsche's service life durability expectations, which apparently are 20 years or so. So, you know, pat on the back for Porsche. They need to get ED- EDRs into their vehicles and a few other <laughs> things that we're not always that happy about. But, you know, this is good to give owners of these vehicles uh, a fix uh, 20 years later almost. Hey, I, you know, this is reason for my next vehicle to be a Porsche. Aren't the Porsche and Volkswagen the same company now? Because I've, yeah. it seems like they've got a very different philosophy for the different brands, which is somewhat surprising. They are different for the purposes of their American distributors. They're, you know, it's so hard to keep up with every car company that owns every car company these days that I keep up primarily with who they register as their American branch. But I think Porsche and BW have been together for quite some time. Yeah, a long time. Porsche, VW, Audi. Um, and I'm not sure. Audi and VW obviously use the same platforms, but Porsche is, uh, from what I see and understand, a, a separate Operation. You're being humble. We know you're a member of the North American Porsche Motor Club. You're out there all the time with your 1968 <laughs> Porsche 911. I have no idea if a 911. Exists. You know, I've I, as the owner of the base VW Jetta model for about 20 <laughs> years now. Um, I'm doing my best to get there someday. <laughs> all right. Well, we're rooting for you. And to help Michael get there someday, go to autosafety.org. Click on donate. Donate him a Porsche. Um, okay, here's a good one. This is a letter from the U.S. Department of Transportation, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, otherwise known as NHTSA, and it is dated March 21st, 2023, and the big, bold headline is, Motor Vehicle Defect Petition to Recall All Tesla Cars Produced from 2013 to the Present <gasps> Due to a Missing Critical Interlock Feature and Specific autopilot features that contribute to increased likelihood of driver errors in the form of pedal misapplication. Wait, pedal misapplication? Pedal misapplication. That is when you hit the uh, accelerator pedal rather than the brake as intended, which is, you know, it happens a lot and it's been behind um, some of claimed sudden acceleration events over the years. Um, I, I, this petition was not interesting to me because of that. We talked about defect petitions uh, with Joanna Johnson a couple of weeks back. Um, so I wanted to highlight this one as an example of, you know, 
what looks like an average consumer from Greece, apparently, who is uh, petitioning NHTSA to look into Tesla's because the, he's alleging that they violate the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard around brake shift interlock, basically before you're able to go from park to drive or park to reverse, you have to hit your brake. And apparently Tesla has enabled some vehicles to get around this um, for driver convenience. And um, he's, you know, this is a pretty significant, you know, it's 10 years worth of Teslas that are being alleged don't comply with the federal motor vehicle safety standards. So, I imagine, you know, NHTSA will have a pretty quick answer to that part of the problem. As to the what it makes up the bulk of the petition, which is, you know, kind of a it goes into neuroscience and neuroplasticity and how drivers hit pedals, subconscious movements and other things, which are way beyond my expertise. So we'll let the folks over at NHTSA evaluate that one. Okay, so this was not a letter from DOT and NHTSA, or was? No, this was actually a defect petition filed by a consumer. Got it. Okay. Um, oh, this is interesting. We'll keep you updated as we go. And now, uh, you know, let's, you know, we've used about an hour of your of your life, and we thank you for joining us. Let's uh, let's end on some on a, on a nice upbeat note. There's a great article. Uh, you can see the link from MSN.com about. Uh, <laughs> seatbelt myths. So uh, I believe this is actually out of NHTSA, right? Where uh, <laughs> seatbelt myth number one, airbags are good enough. Hey, my car is an airbag. I don't need a seatbelt. I thought maybe that was a possibility. I always wear my seatbelt. But then uh, IIHS has these amazing videos of the crash test dummies flying around when there's no seatbelt on. And oh my God, uh, airbags are you, they're just there to punch you in the face and throw you around the car if you don't have a seatbelt on. Yeah, I mean, airbags are designed in anticipation of you wearing your seatbelt. So if you aren't wearing a seatbelt, you're outside. Uh, you're outside of what they were designing them to do. Um, and they're not going, you know, while they might be protective in certain types of crashes, um, you're, 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 you know, seatbelts have saved more lives than airbags and continue to save more lives than airbags every year. You, you know, seatbelts are the number one undisputed champ of life saving. And it's not really even close when you look at all the vehicle technologies that have come out in the last 50 years or more. So, um, you know, airbags are great and they're awesome, but, you know, keep your seatbelt on and then you're doubly protected. And you're also ensuring that, you know, you're protected in the way that the manufacturer designed the vehicle to protect you, which is buckled in a position where the airbags, you know, if, if you're not in a seatbelt, you can become out of position, which is something that happened you know, something we talked about a lot maybe 20 years ago where your know, children or, or small women um, can be harmed by airbags when they're not protected from the, the force of the airbag coming out of the um, dashboard or whatever it was back then. Um, so it's really important, you know, to understand that, that seatbelts are necessary. If you, your car probably has an airbag, but it absolutely must have a supplemental restraint system and the key word in that is supplemental it's never intended to be used without the seat belt so the seat belt complements or the 
supplemental re restraint system complements the seatbelt, the physical restraints that you've got there. That's why it says SRS on the dashboard. It doesn't say use this alone. <laughs> well, SRS is much shorter. You know, they're every penny they can save. Uh, myth number two, I like this one. Seatbelts can hurt you in the event of a crash. And the response to this is, yeah, anything can hurt you in the event of a crash, but the seatbelt's going to keep you in a locked position. It's, it, it's there to restrain you so you don't fly out. Again, watch crash test videos of no seatbelts, no airbags, and humans just become bullets. Yeah. I mean, we've, you, Look, there are certainly, you know, probably often minor injuries, abrasions and things that are caused by seatbelts. There may be some, you know, in lap belt only and in some other types of seatbelts, there may be some pelvic injuries and very high speed crashes and other things. But those type of injuries pale in comparison to what we see in ejection um, crashes that involve ejection are particularly deadly. They're one of the driving forces behind the rise in fatalities on America's roads in the last few years. And um, they're just horrific scenarios um, that play out when, when people are thrown, you know, any number of feet from the vehicle. Um, I had a friend who was a plastic surgeon who said that he had never stitched up anybody who was wearing a seatbelt. I, I think that's a dramatic statement. Maybe we should get a plastic surgeon on here. That's it. We're, we're really hurting Anthony's good vibes on this segment as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is this is good. I remember. I mean, I don't think I've been in a car with anybody who refuses a seatbelt. They're just like, ah, I'm not going to do it in a long time. So I think we've made a lot of good progress as a peoples, as humans, of people wearing seatbelts. Uh, number three. This is one that I'm a. I'm a huge fan of because i think everybody's had this nightmare seat belts can trap you underwater or in a fire uh and basically the statistics show that people who drown or die by fire in a vehicle are half of one percent which i look at as being there's still a chance they can get me um and they sell devices like these um uh these these special knives that will cut through the seat belts and so this isn't really a thing. So I get into a crash and I go off the George Washington Bridge into the Hudson River below. Somehow off of that drop, I survive. Um, but my the only reason you survive that is because you're wearing the seatbelt in the first place, right? <laughs> but my air um, goes off, probably not right. Drown. And then, and and most fires, the 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 occupant is typically unconscious. I mean, and and never. They're never going to remove their seatbelt because they're unconscious. So, I, I, those no, I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot to that. I think that you know the vast, the great, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time when there's a crash involving you know fire, you know, the or water that the the belt isn't what's preventing the escape of the occupant. It's typically they are unconscious or. Um, you know, the, the water poses its own set of challenges that require some advanced knowledge to, to know how to exit the car properly, to wait for the water to fill the vehicle up. Um, you know, there was a, I think there was a woman this morning and uh, I forget what state it was in, but it looked like she drove off. I don't know if it was a GPS error, but she drove off of a boat ramp and was out about 40 feet into a lake and just the top of her Jeep remained up and exposed and i'm assuming she was able to breathe in that space for i think it was 
12 plus hours before someone saw the Jeep and called emergency responders and saved her. She was alive, which is amazing. amazing. You don't hear about that, but that's, um, you know, I, I'm going to bet she was wearing her seatbelt and that's why she survived or or wasn't, you know, debilitated to the point after the initial, um, after the initial crash that she was able to survive that long and, and, and escape ultimately. So the seatbelt release mechanism, it doesn't fail. It doesn't lock into place or anything. Cause I think I'm sure there are cases. I mean, look, everything's going to fail at some point, right? There's some cases of that. I'm certain. Um, but that is incredibly rare. And in those cases, if you are conscious and able to, you know, there are um, seatbelt cutters, which are very helpful, that usually come in a tool that also breaks um, your side window if your side window is not laminated. Right. Okay. So that that was the thing I mentioned earlier. But I, I've generally seen where the seatbelt, the, it's not that the mechanism locks and you can't undo it. It's more that it won't click into place. I mean, that's a more common thing where it... Yeah, and that's really bad. I mean, that's yeah. there have been recalls in the past based on that. Um, some very large ones, in fact, back in the, I think, 90s and early 2000s um, for, for buckles that were false latching and other things. Like sometimes people think it's connected and latched, and then when there's a collision, the belt simply releases and they don't have a seatbelt on. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong with seatbelts, but... This type of thing where you're trapped by your seatbelt, I think, is is more of a more of something that that people who don't want to wear their seatbelts use to tell themselves uh, to make an excuse. Really, I, I don't think there's really a very good chance at all of those circumstances actually occurring. I had Joan Clayburgh in the passenger seat of my car headed for a restaurant. And we got to the restaurant and the seatbelt stuck. I couldn't get the damn thing open. Just had to work <laughs> <laughs> it was a little embarrassing, but you know, after about five minutes of banging on it, we finally got it open. <laughs> and I discovered that the seat belts have a lifetime warranty at Subaru, and so I brought it in and they fixed it. So that was kind of nice. But- that's and that's good too, because some manufacturers do not. I mean, you have people who have seat belt that is, you know has a buckle issue after a few years or the retractor's not working. I'm sure everyone's had an issue with one of those. And manufacturers are hesitant to replace them if the vehicle's not under warranty, even though it is a critical safety component. Um, that's something that I'd love to see put into legislation and law ultimately requiring seatbelt repairs. Um, when there's, you know, when it's obvious they haven't been cut out and stolen by criminals wanting to resell them. Um, it would be great to know that all, all the vehicles on the road are have have seat belts that are operable. And for listeners, Joan Claybrook was the first administrator of NHTSA. Wrong. No, she, I'm wrong. She wasn't the first administrator, wasn't she? No, she was, but she was the administrator, I believe, from around 1976 to 1979 or 80 uh, under the Carter administration. Yeah. William, she was the, she was the best. She was the best, if yeah, not she, the first. Yeah, we got to make sure to say that. She was the best. William Haddon, I believe, was the first administrator ever. No one ever talks about him. They do. They even have a matrix named after him. You should look it up. Now, Fred's never taken him to a restaurant. Uh, and then the last one, because we've taken way too much of your time. I don't wear a seatbelt because I'm not going that far. Famous last words. 
Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's aware by now that most most crashes happen close to your home versus away. Whether it's that's because you're always close to your home or, or other reasons, we're not sure. That statistic's been batted around for years. But cutting to the chase, just put on your seatbelt before you leave your driveway and all these problems are solved. Put on your seatbelt. Fred? What? I, I was sleeping, What? <laughs> Well, he was uh, he was on level three driving right now, and he's shocked that he had to take over. Hey, listeners, thank you so much. Uh, send feedback on the Consumer AV Bill of Rights. Uh, if you donate, we'll pay attention to your feedback. If you don't donate, we'll still pay attention to it, just slightly less. Hey, That's Anthony, do, do we yeah. have to tell the tank story today? No, um, we're not. Okay, so yeah, the, the tank story is still up in the air, folks. We're looking at five monthly recurring donors. You do that, and we will get Fred's tank story. We are so out of time right now. Thank you so much, listeners. Till next week, Fred's Tank Story. Become a monthly. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.